Now, I call this whole series When God Gets Loose. And we're really seeing God on the loose here. This is the birth of the church, the beginning of, of the church. Now, how many of you are thankful for church? Let me see. Amen? It's where we get blessed and edified. And, and you know, our church in the last five, six weeks has grown by 150 to 200 people. And we're just, we're just seeing God, people are being saved every week. And that, that makes it for me. I mean, I love us being blessed, but you guys get blessed all the time anyway. But when somebody gets saved, then the angels in heaven rejoice. Amen? So uh, what we're looking at in the book of Acts, this is all about the beginning of the church that we now enjoy. It's 21 centuries old. And so we ended last time with, Remember, if you'll remember, Gamaliel's advice to an angry Sanhedrin, the, the court of that day, to leave the church alone, leave the disciples alone. And he said, look, if this is of God, you can't fight it because you would find yourself fighting against God. And you don't want to be in a position where you're fighting against God. Amen? Um, then the disciples were beaten with 39 stripes, 40 minus one. I can't imagine that pain. I just can't imagine that pain. Um, But they were, and they walked out rejoicing that they had been worthy of being whipped for Jesus. I wonder how many of us would do that, or if we'd be straight on the phone calling our attorney to sue. They went out rejoicing. Now we come to chapter six, verse one, and this is a short chapter. And it begins, now in those days when the number of the disciples was, what everybody, multiplying. Now notice the church is exploding exponentially. It says multiplying, not simply being added to, but exploding exponentially. And with growth came problems. Gee, what a shock that is. With growth came problems. That threatened to bring division, and division is the big killer of any church. When you lose your unity, you're in trouble. You need to fix it because where there is unity, God commands the blessing. Where there is division, you've got, you've got trouble. And so this threatened to bring division. Look what happened in verse 1, the, the second half. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, one group of Jews, the Hellenists, who were Greek-speaking, began to complain about the Hebrews who were Aramaic-speaking, and they were native-born Palestinians. Now, here's what the Hellenists claim, that there was discrimination going on. Is there anything new under the sun? They said there was discrimination going on. And they said, our widows are being neglected. When you give out your, your daily uh, help to people that really can't help themselves. The, the church was feeding people. The church was helping those that couldn't help themselves, particularly the widows. And it was apparently, it was, clearly it was a distribution of food. And so the disciples hear about this and they called a meeting. And first, they established priorities. Look at verse 2. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said... It's not desirable that we, the apostles, should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, let me be clear. They're not dissing or talking down to people who serve tables. They're not saying that's too lowly for us. They're saying that's not what we were called to. 
We were called to minister the word of God, not to serve tables. And so they go to the congregation with this, and they tell the congregation, they task the congregation to find men who are both spiritual and wise. Now, you know, a lot of times, folks, you have somebody spiritual and they're not very wise. And you have somebody wise, but they're not very spiritual. Because the word wise here is really uh, leaning towards the meaning of practical. We want spiritual men, but they got to also be practical. How many of you have ever known men who are very spiritual, but when it came to practicality, they were bankrupt? Come on, don't look at your husband, look up at me. But isn't it true? We men, listen, a lot of times we're not very practical. And that, that was the case. So we want somebody full of the spirit, but also wise. Now, verse three says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So say with me, reputable, wise, and spiritual. Now, keep in mind, what are they looking for here? They're looking for deacons. And and this is the requirement for deacons, reputable, wise, and spiritual. Finally, they give themselves to purely spiritual ministry. Verse 4, but we, said the apostles, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Because that was their calling. That was their calling. We're called to pray and minister the word, minister the word and pray. That's our calling. That's been my calling since I was 18. I'm called, I was called to give myself to the word of God. And early on, I, I had a relationship with Jesus, but, and I was very wedded to him, but he also wedded me to his word. And it's been my joy, I'm serious, my joy to give myself to the word, and to prayer all these years. And I hope he gives me many more because I love what I'm doing right now. Even though I don't feel the best I've ever felt, it goes away when I start teaching. The anointing chases away any time I feel bad. And so it's already I'm feeling better. It's true. I told Valerie, I said, I'll just come to church and feel bad. Why sit at home and feel bad? But once I start ministering the word, I feel so much better. Amen? Amen. Now, next we see that when a decision is made in keeping with the counsel of the Holy Spirit, I want you to notice something. The whole church says amen. Amen. The whole church amended. Verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. That means the whole church. And then they chose seven such men. Now, including Stephen the man who would prove to be the church's first martyr, and we're going to look at that tonight, and Philip. Now, not the apostle Philip, but Philip the evangelist, who in one chapter, well, in two chapters, chapter 8, is going to conduct the revival in Samaria that would just turn the whole city upside down. Now, it says in 5b, second half of verse 5, they chose Stephen. Now, look at the way it describes him. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and the rest of the names I'm not going to labor through. It's five of them. You're never going to hear of them again. It doesn't matter. But the two that matter, Stephen and Philip. Now, these first two men, Stephen and Philip, illustrate very, very well Paul's comment 
because these are deacons. He said, they that have used the office of a deacon, which is diakonos, it means servant. That's all that it means. Deacon means servant from the Greek word diakonos. They that use the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree. And look what else. Great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So a deacon is not some lowly, nobody wants it position. If you're a deacon, uh, it's an honorable position with high credentials, okay? Now, finally, they're charged to the task by the laying out of hands. It says in the second half of 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, and they commissioned them to the office of a deacon. Now, I want you to look what happened when they get divine order in place because this is the first deacons. These are the first ones. These seven are the first deacons in the whole history of the church. And look what happened when they, when they get in this divine order to solve the problem. Verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. So they had a church explosion. They had a growth explosion when divine order was set in. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, this blows me away because evangelism exploded, and many of the priests who had no doubt about it been involved in the plot against Jesus turned to that same Jesus for their salvation. Amen. Predictably, when God began to move, as always happens, the enemy counterpunched, and I've, and I've taught this to you guys, and I've, and I've gone over this before. We've noticed, I have noticed all through the years of being in ministry that whenever God moves in a strong way, you can, you can know a counterpunch is coming, and it shouldn't shock you. Didn't the apostle say, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange or weird thing were happening to you? But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. So when God moves, the enemy, who's very real, counterpunches. And now here's God moving with this evangelistic explosion. Even priests are getting saved. And the enemy counterpunched and came against Stephen. And we're going to see that Stephen now dominates the narrative all the way through the close of chapter 7 when he is martyred. Now, I want to look at Stephen First, we see his magnificent ministry. Look at verse 8. Stephen. Everybody say Stephen the deacon. I want you to just keep that in mind. This is a deacon. Stephen the deacon, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is the first man that I've been able to find in the Bible to exercise sign gifts apart from the apostles this early on. It says he did great wonders and he did signs among the people. Now, I've told you that a wonder is sent by God to make people wonder. (laughs) The word wonders means an extraordinary event with its supernatural effect left on all witnessing it. It's done to impress onlookers onlookers with the reality of God's power. That's what a wonder is for. It literally makes people wonder, what was that? Well, that could only have been God. But then he also 
did signs. And that means a miracle given especially to confirm, corroborate, or authenticate a message. See, the disciples, they would preach with signs following. And what were those signs to do? They were to authenticate the message. Amen. Now, I want you to put yourself in the mind of the Sanhedrin because they've done everything in the world, all the way back to killing Jesus. They killed Jesus trying to get this guy out of the way and all that he was doing and all the crowds, and we're told specifically they envied him, so they crucify him. They put him in a tomb. Now he's got his apostles running around saying he got up from the dead. So then they get the apostles and they whip them and beat them and tell them, don't preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. But now they got a guy who wasn't even one of the original 12 and he's doing the same thing. And so they're going, we are never going to be able to stop this. And they were absolutely right. Because when God gets on the loose, no man can stop God on the loose. Amen? So I think it infuriated them that now they have others spreading the same message and doing signs and wonders amongst the people, which they could not refute. A miracle right in front of you is a miracle, and you can't deny it. So now the enemy rises up against Stephen. Verse 9, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. That sounds like a place I'd like to go to church. Church of the freedmen, church of the free, but they were anything but free. It says Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia uh, and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now, this motley crew is made up of a melting pot of Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S, that gathered in a particular synagogue to hear the Old Testament scriptures read and expounded on, and they gathered against Stephen in hot debate over the Messiahship of Jesus. But they were no match for the spirit-filled deacon, Stephen. Remember when Jesus said, and don't be afraid or try to think ahead of time what you're going to say when they arrest you. For the Holy Spirit will give you what to say on the spot in the very hour you need to say something. And that's what's happening right here. Look at verse 10. These were, these were very learned Jews, but they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Well, I love that. The Holy Ghost was on this man in a way, folks, that is truly amazing. So here's what they decided. If you can't beat them, lie about them. If you can't beat them, lie about them. Now, does that remind you of anything going on today? I mean, I read this and I go, wow, because what they're about to do, we're seeing people do today on college campuses, in the media, the, the quote, journalists of our day, if you can't beat them, lie about them. First, they hired false informers. Verse 11, then they secretly induced men, that means they paid them, Secretly, secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they were lying. They were doing it for a buck. So there's the false informers. But next, they incite a mob. Like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. 
What's going on on the college campuses today? Those are mobs that have been incited by liars. But now let's go on, verse 12 to 13. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, that is Stephen, seized him and brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. False accusations. And next they misrepresented Stephen's master, Jesus. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So they lied about, falsely arrested on trumped up charges. This man named Stephen, very much like they had done with his Lord. This is exactly what they did to Jesus. False witnesses, liars, trumped up charges. And so finally we see now Stephen's amazing anointing. Now let me ask you, what would you be experiencing if you were there with a whole group of people just told major lies about you that is threatening your very life? What would you be doing? How would you be responding? Afraid? Angry? Defensive? How would you be? I had to ask myself this when I was reading this because this has been a deluge, a flood of lies against this man. But look what happened in verse 15. All who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Now when the Sanhedrin turned to Stephen to see how he was responding to the flood of false charges against him, they saw that his face was angelic. And it reminded me, as the face of Moses had shown with the light of another world, when he came down from the mount, so now the face of Stephen shone with the Shekinah glory of God. Oh, folks, this is so real. Listen, the spirit world is so much more real than the chair you're sitting in. Because if you really get plugged into it via the blood of Jesus, it can literally emanate and shine from you. The light and the glory from that place. It wasn't hate they saw in Stephen's face. It wasn't fear. It wasn't anger. It was heaven. Heaven. There was something on him. The power of God was on him for this last moment of his life. Now, most of chapter 7 consists of Stephen's magnificent sermon. I got to reading his sermon, and then we read uh, Simon Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and I talked to you about how it was a masterpiece. So is this. It's a masterpiece. And these two men, Peter and Stephen, are with no notes, ad-libbing, standing there on the spot with no pre-planning, deliver sermons that are masterpieces under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. So I'm not going to read every verse because it's very lengthy, but I'm going to hit the major points of his sermon. Now, in verse 1, the high priest gives Stephen the chance to defend himself. Then the high priest said, are these things so? Well, let me tell you what I believe. Stephen knows he has no chance for acquittal. 
He knows these people. He knows who they are. These are the ones that killed Jesus, that beat the apostles. These are the ones that had no problem lying about Jesus and crucifying him on trumped-up charges. And he's in front of the same people. So he knows, I'm not going to be acquitted. This is it. This is the big one. I'm going to take my stand. So he focuses on unraveling the false from the true in the twofold charge laid against him. And he begins with Abraham. For that is where, folks, the life of faith began for the Jews and trickled down to us. It says in verse 2, here's Stephen now preaching. He said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved, to this, moved him to this land in which you, on the court in the Sanhedrin, now dwell. The promised land. Abraham's response. Now, here's where Stephen is going. Abraham's response to God's call was a faith response. He obeyed God and left all that he had known to go to a strange land. And later he would be called or be declared righteous by faith by God himself. Now, here's where Stephen is headed. He is showing, going to show them that righteousness comes by faith, not keeping the law. We are declared righteous when we look up and we say, Jesus, I believe on you. And God looks down and says, righteous. It is not by keeping the law perfectly, not by never getting a traffic ticket, not by being a good American citizen. It is by faith, and that's where Stephen's going. Now, next, Stephen deals with Abraham's future descendants. And all he's doing is reciting the story all these men already know. But he had a reason for it. So let's read it, verse 6. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Mark that. That's a prophecy. Verse 7, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. He's just taking them in a little Bible study. Now, it's remarkable to me because Stephen focuses on the mighty omniscience, which means the all-knowingness of God. Because just as God predicted that Israel would, would languish for 400 years in Egypt, that's exactly what they did. Our God is a God of timing. He has exquisite timing. In the fullness of time, he sent his son. When the time arrived, he sent his son. You got saved in the timing of God. Jesus is going to return the exact microsecond God has decreed. God's a God of timing. And so the patriarchs, and this, this is what we need to realize with Stephen's message now. The patriarchs had no temple. 
They had no law. Moses came much later. Their faith was transmitted from generation to generation in simple dependence on the word of God. They believed God. It says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So their father Abraham achieved righteousness by faith, not the keeping of the law. And Stephen is saying all of this to point to righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Now next, Stephen changes his angle of attack to show that the Jewish people, right from the start, had resisted God's plans for them. Now it's about to get fun because now he's not only going to meddle, he's going to stick them and turn the knife. Amen? Here we go. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, their unbelief, the unbelief of the Jewish people, began with their treatment of Joseph. One of the great types of Christ in the Old Testament. As the Sanhedrin had rejected Christ, the patriarchs rejected Joseph. And they're sitting here knowing that's where he's going with this. As the patriarchs rejected Joseph, they had rejected Christ. And for the very same reason, envy. And God delivered Joseph the same way he delivered Jesus. Verse 10, it says, and delivered him, that is Joseph, out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now, this is, this is Stephen preaching to the Sanhedrin. They know this story, but they know he's talking about them. Now, let me show you the parallels between Joseph and Jesus because the parallels were not lost on the Sanhedrin, which was Stephen's intent. Joseph was rejected by his brethren like Jesus. He came to his own. His own received him not. He was sold for the price of a slave. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was handed over to Gentiles, the Egyptians. Jesus was handed over to the Romans, Gentiles. He was falsely accused, lied about attacking, lied about or accused of attacking a woman he did not do, thrown in prison for a trumped-up charge. Jesus was also falsely accused. Joseph was made to suffer for the sin for sins not his own. Jesus suffered for sins not his own. Joseph was cast out by the Gentiles and put into a place of death, prison. Jesus was put into a tomb, the place of death. Joseph took possession of the keys of the prison and ruled there. Jesus took hold of the king of the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Nor could that prison hold Joseph. He was delivered by the word of God. He came forth in triumph to be exalted to the right hand of the majesty, Pharaoh. Death could not hold Jesus. He was delivered by the word of God. He came out of the tomb. Joseph was given a name that was above every name in Egypt. That at the name of Zaphnath paneah yes, that's in the Bible. Zaphnath paneah 
which in Egyptian, that's Egyptian talk, and it means God speaks and he lives. Some commentators say that it means savior of the world. And then all of Egypt was told, when you see Joseph coming, I want every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Zaphnath Panea is Lord to the glory of the Pharaoh. And now the time is coming when Jesus comes back and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, this Sanhedrin is sitting here. They're knowing that this is exactly what Stephen is saying. Joseph was a type of the one who you killed. Now, Stephen proceeds in verses 11 to 14 to describe the dearth of famine that came over the land of Egypt and that worked to reconcile him to his father Jacob, that is Joseph to his father Jacob and to his traitorous brothers. Then in verses 15 and 16, he recites how Jacob and the patriarchs were buried, not in Egypt, but in Canaan, emphasizing the fact that all of God's promises to the Jewish nation were to be fulfilled in Canaan. Then next in verses 17 and 19, Stephen recounts the multiplication of Israel in the land of Egypt and how the Egyptians sought to destroy them. Now, verse 19 describes their treachery, and I want to pull this verse because I want to comment on it. This man, Pharaoh, the one that did not know Joseph, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, says Stephen making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now, I want you to notice how Pharaoh turned to forced infanticide to stop God's purpose. And I pull that out because I want to just comment that anytime you see abortion or infanticide described in Scripture, it's always in an evil context. It's always in a satanic context. Say, well, Jeff, you know, what about just an abortion early trimester, first three months, first two months? What about that? Life begins at the moment of conception. The very moment of conception, life begins. God always couches it. God always places it in the context of wrong. Now, again, we have here a, type of Christ in that the baby Moses, because Moses was delivered, who Stephen is about to devote the rest of his sermon to, the person of Moses, was hidden away from the clutches of Egypt, just like Jesus was hidden from Herod, where he grew to be the Savior of Israel. Now, Stephen next spends verses 20 to 44 on the story of Moses, beginning with his birth, through his childhood, his attempt to rescue a fellow Israelite from abuse of Egyptians, his time in the wilderness herding sheep, his confrontation with God at the burning bush, his journey into Egypt with Aaron, his brother, the signs he performed, Israel's deliverance through the sea, his receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and finally to the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness, and he leaves Moses there. Now, Stephen's mention of the tabernacle, which we've all been reading about, those of you that are going through the Bible in a year with me, you've been reading about the tabernacle, amen? Now, why did he mention the tabernacle? Why mention that to the Sanhedrin? It was to highlight that 
though the tabernacle had been beautiful with a powerful purpose, it was only a temporary structure. It was never intended to be a forever answer. It was destined to be replaced by something far better, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They built the tabernacle so the people could meet with God. But now we don't need a building. We don't need a structure because he's living inside of us. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is his tabernacle. Every peg and pin, every curtain and color, every board and bar in the tabernacle spoke of Christ. Now I want to pull one key verse from Stephen's words about Moses. In verse 37, he quotes Moses out of Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now Stephen knew full well that they knew full well he was pointing out Jesus as that prophet. And he got a picture of these men on the Sanhedrin, the high priest and all the other priests and the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had orchestrated the murder of Jesus, folks. They had orchestrated the murder of Jesus. And here's Stephen getting closer and closer and closer and closer with this accusation against them. He's, he's letting them know everything he's saying is leading up to Jesus. And you murdered the prophet Moses predicted would come and commanded you to hear. And instead, you killed him. Then in verse 47, he mentions Solomon building the great temple, which replaced the tabernacle. But then he says in verse 48, quote, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet Isaiah says. 49, heaven is my throne. He's quoting Isaiah now. Heaven is my throne, says God, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now here, the charge that Stephen had blasphemed God by proclaiming Jesus to be greater than the temple was answered. And you know what he's telling them? Guilty as charged. He is greater than the temple. He is greater than the tabernacle. He is our new and living way. He is the one who has given us full access to the glory, the Shekinah glory and presence of God. The new born-again, blood-bought, spirit-indwelt church was far greater than the perishable temple, one of which had already been burned to the ground in Jeremiah's time, and the one that they were standing in for this trial that existed, that Herod had so beautified, was soon going to be leveled to the ground per the prediction of Jesus himself. He's, here's Stephen preaching in a temple that in just in a couple of decades is going to be completely gone. And he's saying, this doesn't matter anymore. This building doesn't matter anymore. The temple doesn't matter anymore. Because now he dwells in us. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Bought with a price. Now next, Stephen lowers the gauntlet 
and he boldly attacks, vilifying his listeners for their persistent and historic opposition to God, chiefly the sin of resisting the Holy Spirit. Here he goes, verse 51. He looks right at him, and his eyes are on fire, folks. I'm talking Holy Ghost. He's spitting fire now. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels, but you haven't even kept it. Woo! He's not out to win friends and, and uh, amen. He's not out to be popular here. They had accused him, Stephen, of reviling the holy place. He accused them of resisting the Holy Ghost. They had accused him of slighting Moses, the man of God. He accused them of slaying Jesus, the Messiah of God. They had accused him of blaspheming the law. He accuses them of breaking the law. Next, Luke records the seething hatred of a guilty Sanhedrin. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, meaning they were convicted to the marrow of their bone, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, I can't tell you how strong that is in the original Greek language, gnashing. Jesus said, when people get sent to hell, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if you're sitting there knowing you're going to an eternal place of torment, how, how are your teeth going to gnash? He's talking about your teeth banging together. And that's what this heavy-duty conviction did to these men. They're gnashing their teeth. I'm trying to imagine. I mean, this is bad stuff. I mean, he has not made their day. This is serious. And then Stephen's end being right there, this is the end. This is his one and only sermon, his last sermon, his first and last. Jesus grants him a victorious vision. Look what it says, verse 55. But he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus doing what? Standing. Now the Hebrews tells us he is seated at the right hand of Almighty God. What's he doing standing? He's standing up to greet into heaven his first martyr. That's what he's doing. Book of Hebrews says he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here he's standing up. So come on, son, come home. You're about to meet me. You're about to be with me. Standing at the right hand of God and said, Stephen said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They can't take anymore. This is too much. They are completely overdosed. It is, you could cut with a knife the tension in this room. So Luke next records the unrestrained fury of a convicted court. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stop their ears. <laughs> you ever seen a really scary movie? And it came to the scary point, and you did this, no, 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 no. 
You ever done that? I've done that. My parents took, took us to the drive-in one time when I was a little bitty kid. And I don't know why they took us to this thing. It was this horrible movie, this scary movie. And I remember there was nothing I could do because my parents were in the front seat and I was in the back and I had to watch this thing. But I remember when the scary part came, it was so bad. I stuck my fingers in my ears and I started just, no, 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 so I didn't have to hear it or see it. That's what they're doing. They can't take anymore. So they cried out. They stopped their ears and as one man ran at him. They didn't walk towards him. They ran towards him and cast him out of the city and stoned him. The first martyr of the church died by a flurry of stones, striking his head and body. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the pain? One stone after another after another. No stopping. It doesn't end till you end. What a death. But I want you to notice something. The Holy Spirit pauses, because the Holy Spirit is moving Luke to write this. The Holy Spirit pauses to introduce the man who would become Stephen's spiritual heir. He didn't know it. Nobody knew it, and nobody would have guessed it ever. But God knew it. Look at it, it says in 58. And the witnesses lay down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, Old Testament law said this, that the main accuser in a trial like this is the one that you would walk to and put your clothes down in front of. The main accuser is being pointed out here. The main accuser had been Saul. The main accuser. So they laid down their clothes at the feet of Saul because he'd been the main accuser. That's Old Testament tradition, Old Testament law. Now, so in his death, Stephen made an indelible mark on the soul of Saul, proving his death was anything but a waste. God never wastes a pain. Now, I want you to look at verse 59 and how Stephen died. And they stoned Stephen. And what was he doing while the rocks were hitting him? He was calling on God and saying, say it with me, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, just like his master did. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I believe that prayer cut into the heart of Saul. I'm going to go so far as to say, I believe that that last prayer paved the way for Saul's conversion. Because Stephen said, Lord, don't blame particularly my main accuser, this young man, Saul. I believe when he was able to bless and pray for his accusers, Saul went, there has to be more to this. I think his prayer echoed around in that brilliant mind of Saul for days and weeks and months to come. And already his days were numbered because soon the Lord would knock him down and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But didn't he die a spirit-filled death? And he woke up immediately 
in the, in the arms of the one who had stood up to greet him. And so now, this one event right here, the martyrdom of Stephen, with Saul standing there, the rest of the book of Acts turns on this hinge. Because now we're about to have Saul converted before long. And when Saul gets converted, everything changes. But isn't it powerful when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, filled in life and filled in death? Do you see the power that was with this man? Can we stand up together? Isn't that a great, great account of the days of the early church and the first martyr? Let's just thank the Lord. Lord, we just thank you right now for the story of Stephen, this powerful young man filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with boldness, filled with fire, filled with fearlessness. And Lord, live a powerful life died a God-glorifying death, prayed for his accusers on the way out, and Saul came to you as a result. Lord, there's people in this sanctuary tonight who are hurting for various reasons. Some are suffering a physical affliction. Some have had a broken heart. Some have been betrayed. Some are struggling against a habit that is just Uh, wreaking havoc on their life. But Lord, we look at Stephen and we see that you don't waste even the worst pain, but it turned to the glory of God. Now, Lord, take our own sufferings. And Lord, thank you that you're going to get glory from them. Can we just lift our hands to the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the prophet Moses spoke of. Lord Jesus, we worship.